planning is recently moved back to Chattanooga, where we will be planting a church in the Highland Park area of Chattanooga. Um, so please pray for us. This morning, we are going to be looking at a really great passage, and I'm excited to share it with you. Something I've noticed about your church is that it is well-named. That the, the concepts of grace and community are really important to you, so much so that you want to be identified by those concepts. And those are really important biblical concepts, and we're going to look at those today a little bit. I think it's really important that we talk about that right now, because what you're doing by having those concepts in your name is very countercultural to our American life, isn't it? What I mean by that is this, that the American culture is identified more by performance and individualism than by grace and community. In fact, I think they're functionally opposites of each other, don't you? And so for you to be living out of a grace community concept is countercultural to the country we live in. And this passage is one that is going to really help us have a vision for what living with grace and community might look like. That's certainly something that I hope to embody and, and lead my people with as we plant a church. But this is not just a vision for my church. This is a vision for every church because this is God's vision for every Christian. Are you with me? So, this passage, as we just heard, does not use the word love, does it? But you see love described very well throughout this passage. So this morning I'm going to look at five things with you from this passage. This will sort of serve as an outline, if you will. That this passage shows us how the, the believers of this time, the fellowship of believers, they were devoted to learning, loving, serving, worshiping, and evangelizing. And this passage shows us a group of people who were in love with God and demonstrating love to one another. So let me pray for us as we begin. Father, we come here, some of us, having fought with our wives on the way to church. And some of us perhaps are depressed. Some of us perhaps are excited. Lord, I pray that wherever we are, however we come, I pray that you meet us here. That we would learn how to be a beautiful fellowship of believers. And that the gospel will ring true through Trinity. I pray for any who are too comfortable this morning, you would disrupt them for the sake of the gospel. And for those who are in fact disrupted, Lord, I pray that you would give them comfort for the sake of the gospel. So we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. So as we begin with this passage, I want to show you verse 42, which sort of serves as a summary of the whole passage. Look at verse 42 with me. It says, And they... And when it says they, it's referring to the apostles, it's referring to the believers, and most recently, 3,000 converts under Peter's sermon at Pentecost. So they, this group of early church believers, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayers. So I want you to understand that they devoted themselves. And in the Greek, what that means is it's sort of a persistent obstinance. A persistent obstinance. So what that means is that if they didn't persist, if they weren't devoted, nothing would have happened. The things that follow in this passage would not have happened had they not had that devotion. So Chattanooga has recently, in the last couple of years, uh, put on a Ironman triathlon. And I have a friend who's about to do that race. If you don't know what that is, it's when you swim 2.4 miles and you ride a bike, 112 miles, and then you run a marathon just to kind of cool down. It takes a long time. 
And so my buddy and anyone who does that kind of a race, they're not going to be able to complete the training nor the race unless they have a persistent obstinance. You see what I'm talking about? Like you're going to be tired and you're not going to want to continue. And so that's exactly how they engaged us. So it was a deliberate choice that they were making to persist in these things. And the reason is that it's not, again, it's not really part of our human nature for us to do those things. It's like water. For instance, if I had a glass of water and I poured it right here on this concrete, where do you think it would go? It would take the path of least resistance, wouldn't it? And we're really no different in our human nature. Our human nature wants us to take the path of least resistance, doesn't it? And that path of least resistance in our human nature is selfishness and self-gratification. But what you see in this passage is something completely different that they devoted themselves to. So we have to understand from the beginning that this is not going to be easy. In fact, it's going to be quite difficult, so we have to persist. So the first thing I want us to look at is the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's what I have characterized as learning in the outline. So what exactly does that mean, that apostles' teaching? Well, chiefly it's this, that yes, they were learning, but they weren't merely learning up here. They were learning how to live. And so the apostles' teaching would have been teaching them how the story of God is demonstrated through the Bible, through who Christ has brought his people to himself. But not merely is this some sort of an understanding that they would have been blessed with, but it's actually also learning how to live as followers of Christ. And so the rest of the New Testament is really explaining what that looks like. It's continuing to explain what the apostles' teaching would have been. That they, the apostles would have been teaching how every page of the Old Testament is about Jesus and points to him. Or as Sally Lloyd-Jones puts it, how every page whispers his name. If you've seen the Jesus story book, that's something she says. So they would have been teaching Jesus' life, his ministry, his teaching, his death and resurrection. And they would have been teaching how everything is an ethical directive of how we're called to live. A life of love. And so this would have been something not merely taught in Bible studies, but this would have been something that was more of a life-on-life -life discipleship led and modeled by the apostles themselves. You know, love really can't be an abstract concept for us to understand it. It's kind of like warmth. If you read in a textbook something about warmth, you're not going to really understand warmth, right? Warmth and love are something that has to be experienced and for you to be kind of brought into, for you to own it and be able to participate in it. So this is a, a teaching that certainly was cognitive, mental. They were learning many, many things. But this is a life-on-life -life way of living that would have been resulting in the things that you see here. Recently, my wife, um, who has been a believer her whole life, to God's grace, she's never known a day that she didn't know Jesus as her Savior. But recently, she's had a greater hunger for God's Word, which is also God's grace. In that, I found a cyclical, kind of, well, a cycle. Um, in that the more she hungers for the Word, and the more she digests the story of God's grace and the Word, the more she actually has a hunger for it. And so it's this cyclical, repetitive dance that's happening. As she's filled with the holy things of God and seeing the beauty of the cross, 
in the story of Scripture and in her life, and it's showing in her life. If we are to become a beautiful, loving community, like we see in this passage, it has to start with falling in love with the story of the gospel throughout Scripture. And certainly for us to devote ourselves to obeying Jesus' teaching and loving our neighbor as ourselves. So, not only did they devote themselves to learning, and that learning was also living, they also devoted themselves to the fellowship, as it says in verse 42. That's what I have described as loving. So, what exactly is that fellowship? Well, it's essentially doing everything else in this passage in unity together. Worshiping, evangelizing, serving, all of these things. They're doing these things together in unity. Look at verse 44. It says this. And all who believed, that's the best of believers, were together and had all things in common. Are we to understand that togetherness merely as physical association? Or perhaps is that something more? Perhaps that's emotional, mental, spiritual. And they have all things in common, possessions. But not just possessions, but there was sort of a unity of spirit in the way that they were engaging with one another. And so this togetherness is not just the physical presence, and it's not just the quantity of time that they were spending together, but it was the quality of time that they were spending together. Very purposeful and intentional in nature. I want to reference uh, Hebrews here. Hebrews 10, verse uh, 24 and 25. If you have a, a Bible, I invite you to check that out now or later. It says this, And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. But listen to the next verse. It says, Not neglecting to meet together. As is the habit of some. But encouraging one another, and all the more as the day draws near. So, what you see there is there is a temptation to not meet together. But we are given this admonition that we would do the opposite, that we would meet together, and we would do it purposefully towards encouraging one another, stirring one another up towards love, and it works. Look at verse 46 with me. It says this this basically describes the nature of what they were doing every day. Day by day, attending the temple, the place of worship, together, and breaking bread in their homes, very communal, very natural, very organic every day, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. So, their whole life is demonstrating this togetherness, and it's resulting in praising God. If I were to go in my backyard, and I were to build a huge fire. And, and spend 30 minutes really feeding it and getting the temperature up and letting it develop a nice cold base at the bottom that's going to sustain the fire from the underneath and real intense heat coming from underneath. And then I want to take a coal from right out of the middle, really hot coal, and put it to the side. You know what's going to happen to that coal? It's, it's going to get cool. It's not going to take very long for that coal to become cold and just be a piece of burnt wood. Do you know why that is? It's because there's an intensification that happens in the proximity of coals. And in God's grace and kindness to us, the church is by necessity a community faith. That our faith is an intensification of each other's faith as we as a community of believers come together and share these things. 
Two chief reasons why this is. Number one, we're created in the image of God, who is in himself in community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So our very creational DNA is a DNA that longs for community, longs for intimacy and love. That's how we're created. And second, that this whole New Testament concept, Old Testament concept, biblical concept of love is kind of hard to do by yourself, isn't it? So by necessity, the Christian faith is a faith that needs community. So not only were they devoted to learning, not only were they devoted to loving and to the fellowship, they're also devoted to serving. And you, you'll notice it does not say that they're serving. It doesn't use that word in verse 42 or the rest of this passage. But it's described pretty well in verse 45. Look at this verse with me. It says, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So love isn't really just a feeling. You, you know, you, you got the butterflies sometimes. You might have that feeling. But love, according to the Bible, is not a feeling. Love, according to the Bible, is action. And it's actually sacrificial action. And so here we have this beautiful demonstration of sacrificial love. And we chiefly know that love through Christ and what he's done for us. Let's look at 1 John 4, verse 10 and 11. 1 John 4, 10 and 11 says this, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for um, the atonement for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So this is the gospel. I don't know how you came in this morning. I don't know if you're disengaged from the church and you happen to just be here. I don't know if you've been in church your whole life, if you really understood the story. But this is the gospel, that God has set his love and affection upon us, not because we're lovable, but because he loves us. This morning, if you don't know the gospel, and you don't know the Lord as your personal Savior, I invite you to talk to me or one of the elders of this church afterwards and meet Jesus as your personal Savior. So this verse that we just read is showing us that that is what sacrificial love is, and we only are participating in sacrificial love when we're reflecting what Jesus has done for us. Of course, this is a very foreign concept to us because of our selfish nature. Um, my daughter, if you get the pleasure of meeting her in this cute little dress that she's wearing around today, she's an angel in many, many ways. But that little girl was never taught to be selfish. And yet she is a pro. You know why? Because little kids don't have to be taught to be selfish. They're just selfish. This is the nature that we're born with. And so when we're given the Holy Spirit and we're touched by the gospel and we're surrounded by the fellowship of believers for encouragement and exhortation, we can actually embody that love, but it is a foreign concept to us. So look at the way that they were demonstrating this love. In verse 45, they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This is a demonstration of sacrificial giving. And they were able to do it because their hearts were open. Their hearts were open to the fact that God was pouring in the Spirit and that they were willing to pour their own life into others. Their eyes were open to see the needs of the community.
community around them. I don't know about you, but I'm very guilty of often having my eyes closed and not being curious and available. The pastor guy. But their eyes were open. And furthermore, their hands were open as they were not holding on to their possessions, but they were blessing others with those and distributing the needs and meeting the needs of this community. And some people have argued that this passage teaches communism. Have you ever heard of that? But this is not communism because communism is a tyrannical, oppressive system where you're not allowed to own anything. But they, they certainly did own things. They owned possessions. And they voluntarily, motivation being love, were distributing the proceeds of those things to those in need. This is a voluntary action. 1 John, again, is really, really helpful for us to kind of sink in. 1 John 3.16 says this, By this we know love. He's, he's about to tell us how we actually know what love looks like. He laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now, unless we walk away, we don't really know what that means on a day-to-day -day basis. He's going to tell us. Listen to this. If anyone has the world's goods, possessions, money, resources, and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. You see, the Bible does teach to talk is cheap, but it was authenticated by their love and their service. And it can be authenticated in this church, and through this church's authentic love, it can be demonstrated to Trent, and it can be powerful. You see, they were devoted to all these things, but the number one thing that they were devoted to was worship. All of their love and all of our love horizontally here is sustained and fueled by our worship of God vertically. Verse 42 refers to this as the breaking of bread and the prayers. And we also see it as they go to the temple. This is certainly including the Lord's Supper, but it's also including table fellowship. And the prayers would have certainly been just regular standard prayers at the temple, but it would have also just been me talking to Johnny and realizing Johnny needs prayer. Or Johnny's excited and we give thanks. And basically living a life of prayer with each other. This would have been not just the event of worship. This would have been a lifestyle of worship as they are sharing all things in common, worshiping the Lord together. Look at verse 46 of it. It says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. This is a complete lifestyle of worship. And the result is that this lifestyle of worship, this community, this fellowship of believers who are devoted to all these things together, it spills over into the community around them. And the Lord does mighty things. It doesn't say that they were evangelizing, but we know that they were sharing their faith. It says in verse 47 that they were having favor with all the people. Can you imagine why that is? Why would they have been having favor with all the people? Well, 
Because love is the most attractive thing that we could ever see. And it was being demonstrated with authentic measures. They were not being accused of hypocrisy and Sunday church-going Southern Christianity. People were being bought in to what they were experiencing. But remember this. It was the Lord who added to their number. Now, their love paved the way. Yeah? Their love sort of tilled the soil that they were planting in. But they certainly had to do the work of planting. They had to share the gospel. I mean, Paul tells us in Romans, how can, how can someone be saved if they don't hear the gospel? How? They can't. Love's great. It'll, it'll make you feel great. It'll make you want to be friends with somebody, but it's not going to get you saved. You've got to actually till the soil with the love, but then you also have to deposit the seed of the gospel in someone's life. It was the Lord who added to the number. Yet they were a part of that. A good friend of mine named Kayla shared a powerful story of her conversion with me. She was raised in a community somewhat like I am from northeast Tennessee, a little place called Elizabeth. And um, she was exposed to a lot of phony Christianity. But then she saw something real. Let me share her testimony with you. She says, I grew up going to church every week in an area where almost everyone was a churchgoer and a Christian. Does that sound familiar? Amen? You can do that. I consider myself saved because I once said a prayer. In my early adult life, I moved to an area where Christians were not the majority. They were ridiculed in many areas. But it was there that my eyes were opened to the authenticity and love for Jesus. And I saw people sacrificing for their faith, genuinely striving to be like Christ all days of the week. And their Sunday selves were not any different from the other day of the week selves. I almost immediately was invited into this natural discipleship relationship that was hospitable and it was very loving. I was challenged, I was taught and exposed to the spirit rather than simply to religion and church culture. And after a year or so of experiencing these differences, I had my own spiritual eye-opening. And God revolutionized my life, and I'm happy to now be claiming an authentic relationship with Him as my own. And you can tell. This woman was changed. And she is on fire for you. And when you're around her, you're experiencing authentic love. It's beautiful. You know, the, uh, some people will argue, hey, what's the best method of evangelism? What's the best apologetic or defense of the faith? What's the best way? You know what the answer to both ones? It's love. It's just, it's just so simple. It's just love. It's the best evangelistic technique, and it's certainly the best apologetic. Friend, I've never baptized an adult. I've never baptized someone who's come to faith as an adult. I've baptized some babies. That's great. I believe in that. I want to baptize some adults who come to faith. What would it be like for grace, community, church, a trade, to have someone exposed to the gospel for the first time and stand here and be so bold as to share a testimony of how God 
has brought them to himself through the love and authentic demonstration of Christ in this church. What would that be like? Maybe you do that all the time. If you do, I'm going to call a hunch and ask for a job. I want to issue you a challenge. This is up to the Lord to save his people and to work in the hearts of his people that are in Trenton. It's up to him. But you have a part to play. I want to issue you a challenge the same way I want to issue myself a challenge to hold that vision and to pray towards that vision and labor towards that vision that you would even be so bold as to pray that within six months that will happen. To the praise of our Father, the worship of the Son, and seeing the Holy Spirit do amazing things in the world around us. So how do we do that, number one? Pray for the Lord to add to our number. I'm not a part of your church formally. This is our church. We are the body of Let's pray to the Lord to add to his number. And let's all devote ourselves to the things that we see in this passage today. Let's pray again. Jesus, um, you taught us how to love. And we're really bad at it. I'm really bad at it. Would you help us? Would you help us to demonstrate real love for each other in this church? And may this church's real love for each other spill over into the community and may you do powerful things more than we would even hope or dream. For your glory and for your people's good. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.